Um, Benjamin Skinner first learned about slavery as a child in a Quaker meeting. In 2003, while on assignment for Newsweek International, he met his first survivor of slavery. Though there are more slaves today than ever before, finding them has proven to be the most daunting challenge of Mr. Skinner's professional life. Slaves languish in shadows, kept hidden by violent traffickers and masters. Going undercover when necessary, Skinner infiltrated trafficking networks and slave quarries, urban child markets, and illegal brothels. In the process, he became the first person in history to observe the sales of human beings on four continents. Uh, Mr. Skinner is the author of A Crime So Monstrous, Face-to-Face with Modern-Day Slavery, which will be on sale shortly after the lecture. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Ben Skinner. Thank you very much, uh, Gregory. And let me just add my thanks uh, to, to MOCA for this gorgeous space and to the uh, California Wellness Foundation for the check and, uh, for <laughs> and, uh, and to all of Gregory's colleagues at, at Zocalo, uh, Dulce and, and Laura. Um, I, I'm wondering if there's a representative from another organization in the crowd. Is there somebody here from Cast LA by any chance? Excellent, excellent. I'm so glad you're here. Um, Cast LA is, to my eye, um, the the most mature um, organization working to fight slavery and trafficking in uh, the states at the local level. Um, they've been doing it for. Um, they've been doing it for. They've. they've uh, the oldest uh, trafficking shelter is that correct? In, in the in the states for for trafficked women, first first trafficking shelter for for um, for trafficked uh, women um, right here in L.A. and the um, uh, the Cast L.A. actually stands for um, the the coalition to abolish slavery uh, and trafficking and. It, 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 it leads to a question, uh, abolition. Uh, what does that mean? And isn't, it, isn't that done? Uh, we live in a world today where every single country on earth has some law against slavery and the slave trade. There are over 300 international treaties banning slavery and the slave trade. There are over a dozen universal conventions banning slavery and the slave trade. And yet, today, there are more slaves in the world than at any point in human history. Now, the, um, the, the term slave doesn't mean very much uh, unless, unless we update the definition, unless we think very clearly about what slavery actually is. Because in, in modern life, it, it sort of lost its, its uh, currency. You have, um, you have a banker in my hometown of, of New York who... who claims to be a slave because he's obliged to work 80 hours a week 
even though he's paid a six-figure salary and, and claims to be a slave because he's eminently disposable, um, as, as so many bankers have unfortunately found out this week. <laughs> um, uh, the the Merriam-Webster definition of slavery even needs updating. The first, the first definition is drudgery or toil. It's become this metaphor for, for undue hardship. The... Um, uh, a lot of well-meaning activists as well will um, use the term occasionally a bit too loosely to describe anybody who is underpaid, for example. So the, the definition in popular consciousness is, has, as I say, lost its currency, but the reality as a fact of life for millions of people has not lost its currency. The definition that I adopted for this book of slavery, slaves are those forced to work through fraud or under threat of violence for no pay beyond subsistence. And by that narrow definition, there are more slaves today than at any point in human history. So so where are they? Because... As I say, every country on earth has abolished slavery in the slave trade. It's, you can't go uh, to the South, the American South, and, and purchase a slave for, for the equivalent of $40,000 the way you used to be able to do in 1865. What I found is that slavery, real slavery, is still chillingly close. First of all, start with the broad numbers. Uh, if you take the, the, the merest estimates of slaves trafficked into the United States every year, we're talking about anywhere between 14,000 and 17,000 taken into the United States into bondage each and every year. If we're talking about trafficked across international borders more generally, we're talking about 600 to 800,000 annually trafficked into slavery, forced to work under threat of violence for no pay beyond subsistence. If you take a look at, if you were to plot slavery on a map, most slaves, most slaves would be somewhere on the Asian subcontinent. And typically they would be in some form of hereditary debt bondage. And by that I mean, essentially, they are the collateral for a debt that they may themselves not have taken, that their grandfather or their great-grandfather may have taken. In the case of one fellow that I met in northern India, he was forced to work under threat of violence, enslaved to a serial killer, and the original debt that held him in place and that he still believed was, had, had some force of, of power over him, some force of bondage over him, was a debt that his grandfather had taken of 62 cents. And three generations and three slave masters later, he was forced to work to a man that local police knew to be a serial killer 
and they had never arrested and who held his human jackhammers, this was in a quarry, held his human jackhammers in place through sheer unmitigated violence. There's only one way that you can turn a profit off of handmade sand, and that's through slavery, and this fellow managed to do it. So the numbers, as I say, are are staggering. But until you understand what that fellow's life is like, they don't mean very much. Unfortunately, it's a lot of times the worst people that come up with the best quotes. And um, Stalin said that the, the death of one man is a tragedy, but the death of a million men is a statistic. I wanted to get to describe the slavery of one man, of one woman, of one child. And that was the goal behind the book. And as Greg said, the, the most daunting challenge in the early going was to find slaves on the ground. And this is not something where I can contact a, um, the, the publicist of a, of a trafficker and set up an interview. These are people that are violating not just national laws, but international laws and human laws, and they don't typically want to be caught. The, uh, what I found, however, was in some cases, it really wasn't that hard. Let's, let's say just for a moment that right here we're in the, in the center of the moral universe, which indulge me in that. I mean, I think, I think I, <laughs> um, Barack Obama was here today, right? Isn't that? <laughs> so, so maybe we're a bit clear. I'm not endorsing anybody. But, um, um, but from this point, we are some 10 hours, give or take a couple hours, from, from being able to negotiate in broad daylight the sale of a healthy boy or a girl. And I was able to do this on the street in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. I pulled up in a car, I rolled down a window, and there's a place in front of a barber shop that before I published the book I made sure it was shut down so I wasn't giving a road map to any, anybody who was doing the wrong, uh, had the wrong idea. But unfortunately it still exists. It may not be in front of a barber shop now, but it's still down there. Somebody came over to the car and said, do you want to get a person? I brought out a tape recorder and said, I'm a journalist and I'd like to talk to you about your work. And he said, no problem. And we began talking in great detail about his work and his cost basis and his profit motive and his product. And his product was children. He sold children into slavery. Now what he said is he, he didn't sell children, he, he places them and he happens to receive a fee for, for the children that he doesn't sell. And at one point I leaned in and I said, you know, I'm going to be here for a little while, could, could I talk to you about maybe buying a child? 
And to be clear, this is not for adoption. By UNICEF estimates, there are some 300,000 child slaves in Haiti alone, a country that was born of a slave revolt, now has more slaves than any other in the Western Hemisphere. And what these slaves do, generally speaking, is domestic labor. But there's also something known in Creole as the um, pusa'a phenomenon, which is the there for, there for that phenomenon. And I'd read a bit about this before I went down there. And so as we were negotiating, I wasn't surprised when the negotiation took a, a rather stomach-turning turn. The trafficker asked me what I would want the child for, and I said, well, would it be possible to have this, this child to, um, to cook? No problem. What do you need this child to be able to cook? To clean, of course. I couldn't send this child to school, but I could, I could give this, this child a place to sleep on the floor. What, what age child? Well, I was thinking 9 to 12 years old. And then he leaned in and he said, this is a rather delicate question, but would you like this child as a partner as well as a domestic slave? And I said, is it, is it possible to have the child as both a domestic slave and a partner? He didn't flinch and he said, we, oui, no problem. And the, the asking price for, for this child was a hundred U.S. dollars, and I negotiated him down to fifty U.S. dollars, which was less of the price of the cab fare that I took from my Brooklyn apartment to to uh, the airport, and probably less than the cab fare from here to LAX. Fifty U.S. dollars. Compare that to the average price of a healthy male in, 18, in 1860, prior to the abolition of, of slavery in the United States. In today's dollars, the average male would cost about $40,000. Today, the devaluation of human life is incredibly pronounced. So I had a principle of not paying for human life. And I stuck to that wherever I went. And the, the, the principle was born of, of, of a great deal of soul-searching. It's, it's very tempting, um, as other fantastic journalists like Nick Kristof have done, to when confronted with uh, a, particularly a child in bondage, to just say, well, this money is nothing to me. Why don't I just buy her freedom? I think, as, as Nick Kristof found, it's not that easy. When he went back in a year, one of the girls that he had bought out of the brothel was back in, bond, back in bondage, back in the brothel, and hooked on methamphetamines. Emancipation is just the first step. It's 10% of the process, 5% of the process, 90%, 95% is the work that groups like Cast LA do in terms of rehabilitation, reintegration, strengthening of slaves so that slaves can become survivors 
and survivors sometimes can become leaders in the cause. Um, I did, however, I did after speaking with this fellow whose name was Beneville, his real name is Beneville Labom, and as far as I know, he's, um, I, I tried to do some due diligence before I went down with uh, ABC Nightline earlier this summer just to make sure I wasn't going to get any of my fixers killed. And he's, uh, he's left the country. I think he may be somewhere in the States, so keep an eye out. Um, I, after I spoke with him, I went up to the highlands of southern Haiti, which is where he would find the child that he would sell me. And I went not with the intention of buying a child, but with, the, with an eye to looking at the conditions under which a mother will make the devil's choice, which is really no choice at all, between watching her, her child slowly starve to death or die of a preventable disease, or to give this child to a smooth-talking trafficker, and yes, an uncertain fate. And I found a village where, uh, in the, uh, this, to, to describe just how remote this place was, I, was, I, I took, I took a, um, a tap-tap uh, from a local form of transportation south from, from Port-au-Prince. It was about three or four hours to, um, to the, near the coast, and then took a motorcycle another two or three hours up into the highlands, just over nothing like roads, and then walked for another four hours. Um, this place was extraordinarily remote. And, and yet, these families were surviving in a village out there. And the bottom had fallen out on the price of their crops. They had no, no sense of where their next, uh, next month's meal would be coming from. Uh, nobody in the village, I think, uh, nobody in the village ate meat more than once a month. I have to, I have to check my statistics on that. But we're talking about people who are teetering on the brink. Massive, massive food insecurity. And all but one of the families had given away at least one child to a trafficker. And the next morning... When I woke up, by the fire, a, a woman came, and she said, I know my daughter is in slavery, and I want to get her out. And I said, do you know where she's being held? And, and she said, well, she's, on, uh, she's somewhere on Delma. And I said, well, Delma is a very big street. Delma, to describe it, is an artery that runs from... Cité Soleil uh, in the south, which is the world's largest, or the Western Hemisphere's largest slum, all the way up to Petronville, which is the richest neighborhood, and it basically goes up the up Port-au-Prince. Um, and I said, you know, Delma is enormous, and many parts are extraordinarily dangerous or, or gang-controlled. Do you know exactly where your daughter is? I said, I want to help you here, but I'm not sure about this. And I instantly had that thought, what am I getting myself involved with? What happens if we find, if we find her daughter? 
And I, I told her to meet me in a week. And she came with a community leader, and I came with um, my translator, who had the, um, the right predisposition for this line of work. He'd served time in a Georgia State penitentiary and, and was, uh, was, was um, uh, quite confident in, in tough situations. And we walked in. We walked into the the place after some after some fumbling around uh, and and talking to to neighbors. The, um, the the determination of this mother to find her daughter uh, was absolutely overwhelming. And within within half an hour, we'd found the building where she was being held, and we walked in. And for the first time in three years, this mother held her daughter's hand. And we walked out. And I recognized that I'd crossed a line as a journalist in that, in that moment. And frankly, I was, I was uneasy about it at the time because I thought, well, this is, this is I've changed this person's life. And I talked to uh, Latan, who's who is the mother of Kamsi's, the, the young woman, the girl, who was 13 years old. And first of all, Kamsi's was absolutely in shock. I, I saw her smile only at the very end of that day. It was almost as if there was, there was very little recognition even of, of her mother. And uh, I talked to Latana and I said, what would keep her out of slavery? What would keep her free? And she said, if I could pay for school, if I could keep her in school, and if I could give her one, one meal a day, then I could keep her out of the hands of traffickers. I, that would be an option to keep her alive. And I said, how much would that cost? And she said, $84, which is more than the negotiated price, of course, of the girl that I was talking to Benefel about. But it was eminently more worthwhile in, in my estimation. And so I offered a scholarship to Cam C's then and, and every day that, uh, every year that she stays in school. Now, um, the, the, the December after that, this was in October, and December after that, on December 25th, Christmas, I was in uh, northern India in, a, in, a, in the one internet cafe in a tiny town in Bihar, the poorest district in, in India, um, poorest uh, state in India. And, um, and I had uh, two emails, actually three emails. One was from my editor saying Merry Christmas. One was from my mom saying Merry Christmas, who's here. Um, and uh, another was from... An, uh, an organization, an NGO on the ground uh, that I had been administrating the scholarship to Camp C's through. And uh, there, was, there was a picture of Camp C's in her school uniform, and there was a note uh, that was the first one that she had written in Creole and had been translated into somewhat choppy English and sent to me. And she closed that note by saying... It's me, your child, Cam C's, who you took out of misery on Delma 34. And that was really the only Christmas gift that I got that year, but it was 
by far the only one I needed. There's, there's one more story. Is, is Maria Suarez here by any chance? Um, I, I saw her last night and I told her to come and I hope, um, I hope she would. But um, Maria Suarez is, is one of the most inspirational people that I've met in the last few months. Um, and I'd like to just very briefly, because I've been asked to say a word or two about slavery in, in Los Angeles. Um, and uh, maybe my friend up here from Cast LA could, could also talk about your programs afterwards. But the um, uh, Maria, I think, uh, embodies so much about why it's worth fighting this and why slaves are not disposable people. Uh, Maria was enslaved, trafficked into the country at age 15 from, from Mexico, at age 16, actually, from, from Mexico, and held for five years right here in Los Angeles in, in brutal, brutal domestic slavery, raped regularly. She, uh, she survived and only got free when a, uh, a neighbor killed her, her captor. Uh, the, we've gone through a, a, a very long maturation and, and too long, I think, maturation process in this country in terms of the state response to slavery and the state understanding of, of slavery and also domestic abuse. She was not given a good defense when she was charged with the murder of this person. And so after five years of brutal slavery, she was sentenced to 25 years in prison, wrongly, for the murder of her captor. There is... Uh, as I've already given away the ending by saying that she, I saw her last night, but there is a somewhat happy ending. She did have a little bit of justice, as she, in her term, uh, as she as she put it, where she was released early uh, by Governor Gray Davis, um, and her case is still pending. There are still there's still uh, issues up in the air about her immigration status, but she's free. And she's so much more than free. Um, she, who could not move anywhere for almost 30 years, now runs everywhere. And she's run several marathons. And much more importantly, she, she continues work that she began as a prisoner, counseling victims of domestic abuse. And... I saw her last night, and she looks stunning. And and she is, she embodies why we fight. And I should say it was largely thanks to Cast LA that her that her case was was taken up and and revisited, and that she is now today free. Um, so let me just conclude. Um, and then be thinking of questions, because I'm sure you have many, um, uh, by saying it's, it's stories like Maria's and stories like Cam Caesar's that 
really are why we, we fight and why I encourage, implore all of you to join this fight. There are so many things that you can do. First of all, in this election year, I had an off-the-record briefing this morning, and because it was off-the-record, I can't talk about what both campaigns were saying, but I was talking to the Obama team and the McCain team about what they're going to do um, with, uh, with regards to modern-day slavery. And I was with other representatives of, of Free the Slaves, another great organization, along with Cast LA. Um, and... And I, I, I had this. I said at one point in that in that briefing, you know, this is great. I'm so glad to hear you guys are ginned up about this. Um, but it really isn't who in Washington is against slavery. It's how high up in your inbox it is. And it won't be high up in their inbox if it's not high up in your inbox. And so, write your senators, write your congressmen. There's, there's a, uh, a bill pending right now, which basically dies, I think, in two weeks, um, sponsored by uh, Joe Biden on, on one side and Sam Brownback on the other. The, it's the William Wilberforce Trafficking Victims Reauthorization Act, and it's, it's an imperfect bill, but the alternative, uh, I believe, is to see what is right now a mandate to fight human trafficking abroad through the State Department and at home through the Justice Department. It's to see that mandate fall apart a bit um, and, and, and enter into a, into a period of uncertainty. And I think that that would be tragic because the U.S. government can do a lot. But much more than that, you all can do a lot directly by supporting groups like, like CastLA, castla.org, is that right? castla.org, uh, and Free the Slaves on the web at freetheslaves.net. Um, and uh, obviously, direct financial contributions are great. You can, you can volunteer. There's a whole range of ways that you can do this. But I'm reminded of, of the words of Henry David Thoreau, who was writing to a friend of his, two days before the outbreak of the Civil War. Um, when I think about when I think about why it's worth acting, and what he said, uh, as many of you know, Thoreau was uh, pacifist, but he was really torn between the sense of pacifism and abolitionism. And he was writing to a friend who had been who had been expressing outrage about these stories of slavery and the rumbling disunion that he was reading in the New York Herald. And Thoreau said, what business have you, if you are an angel of light, to be pondering over the deeds of darkness? And he meant that as an admonition. And I took it, and I hope all of you take it, as an exhortation to not just ponder over the deeds of darkness, but to fight them. Thank you so much. Thank you, folks. We'd like to uh, begin our Q&A portion of our lecture tonight. We want to remind you that this is being uh, recorded for a podcast, so all questions must be asked into the microphone. Just raise your hand and wait for a Sokolo staff to get to you. There's two of us going around. Um, also, please state your name before you question. And at this time, our donation buckets will be going around, so we do appreciate any and all support.
So do we have questions for Mr. Skinner? We have a question up here to your right, Mr. Skinner. Hi. Um, Leslie Thurman. Um, I was just wondering, I think that there are individuals and foundations that are particularly active in this area, Pierre and Pam Amidjar and Humanity United. I don't know if they're supporting your work, but I was also curious to see if there are other uh, individuals or sort of people who are showing the way in this area besides uh, government funding, which we all know can be quite slow and, and uh, arduous to get. Um, are, there, are there individuals or others besides the Omidyars in particular that are supporting this kind of work and, and also that maybe the audience can sort of you know, be attuned to but it, because I think this work is obviously very important so we should be uh, applauding the work, the people who are supporting the kind of work that you're doing. I'm so glad you asked that question because there are a few people who, who really don't do this for, for any sort of recognition but who I think it's worthy to, to recognize and the, the Omidyars are, are prime examples of that. Um, I, was, um, I was really privileged last night to be in the audience at USC. There was something called the Freedom Awards um, put on by Free the Slaves, funded um, by the Templeton Foundation which is one of those great groups, uh, and, and Humanity United, which is the Omidyars, the eBay founders um, group. And uh, this was basically honoring a, a number of local abolitionists worldwide. Um, there was one group in Ghana, one group in Brazil, um, one group in, in Uganda, another one based in the Philippines but with global reach. Um, and all of these folks were doing the most amazing uh, remarkable work. Two of the people who headed up these organizations had themselves been been slaves um, and had transcended their bondage not just to become survivors but to become abolitionists and fighters and leaders themselves. Their work would absolutely not be possible without the, with the support of the uh, incredible generous support of uh, Templeton and HU Humanity United um, uh, there's, I should say, I don't, I don't know if you actually give directly to the foundations, but you can certainly support the work that they're doing by supporting the people who they support. Um, one of the big ones is Free the Slaves. Um, and Free the Slaves has, uh, to my eye, the best programs worldwide for uh, not only freeing slaves, because as I say, freeing, freeing slaves is really just the beginning but eradicating bondage by making sure that freedom is sustainable and making sure that slaves, survivors, plant the idea of freedom within their community so that others don't succumb to traffickers, so that, that mothers have uh, options of, uh, and, and this is, again, Free the Slaves partners work, work with microfinance initiatives, they work on the ground with the sort of nuts and bolts stuff like digging wells, and making sure that the basic needs of these communities are met. So that, so that right now, these communities that are so vulnerable to traffickers will be able to sustain themselves and sustain freedom. Uh, I, I talk a lot about Free the Slaves because I've seen their, their partners work up close, uh, and, and I was looking at it with a critical eye um, uh, as, as a journalist. And... Um, they acknowledge that, that sometimes it's imperfect, and when it's imperfect, they adjust. And, and they, they're constantly evaluating. They were just uh, given charity navigators, which is sort of the, um, it was referred to last night as the 
uh, basically the Michelin Guide of charity charity work. It was given they, they gave uh, um, they gave free the slaves their highest uh, highest ranking, higher than Human Rights Watch, higher than a whole bunch of other very very good organizations. Um, eminently eminently worthy of our support, as is as is Castellet, who free the slaves works very closely with. Hi, my name is Bailey. Um, I feel like um, there. You say that there are so many slaves in LA and in this area, and this is where I live. And and I think it's easy to sort of feel that helplessness. And what what would you suggest we could do to help a situation like this? Yeah. Great. Uh, good evening, everyone. My name is Kay Buck, and I have the privilege of serving as the executive director of CAST LA for the Coalition to Abolish Slavery and Trafficking. And, um, you know, you're right. We do feel helpless when we hear these stories and we know about slavery in our own backyard. And there's many things you can do. Um, you can volunteer with us as an organization. You can get involved. We just started our annual uh, donor campaign. So if you want to talk with us, after this um, event, we'd be more than happy to fill you in, or you can go to our website, castla.org, and, or call us, 213-365-1906. Um, does that answer your question? I don't want to take up all the time. Well, we provide services directly to former slaves who are found here in Los Angeles. Sorry, I'm just, I just got here, so I'm catching my breath. And um, we also do a lot of policy work in D.C. and also in Sacramento, and one of the, what we're known for is opening the very first shelter for trafficked women in the country, which is here in Los Angeles. So if you, any of you are interested in getting behind that effort in helping the women and the men and the, and the children who are rescued and, and helped here in our backyards, we'd greatly appreciate all of the support. Does that answer your question? <laughs> are there any other questions while we go? Yeah. I'll repeat it. Absolutely. Yeah. I just want to repeat that. So right now, as, um, as Ben mentioned, there is a bill on the Senate floor, and we have two weeks to get it passed. So it is so critical that you're calling your representatives in D.C. to pass what's called the TVPRA. Just remember that. And to get that bill passed through the Senate so we can have a law in place to help all of the survivors um, we're helping not just here but also all over the country. Another question. Sorry to do this. We have a, a lobby out here watching the television that only points at him. <laughs> I'll so stay, if we're going to do put. this, because we have 30 put. people outside, come down here with us, please. Please. Do you mind coming down? You as well. Okay, so 
So the question was, what does the bill provide? And we've got a great bill because it's uh, known as the three P's, the three prongs. It works on pro protections, which means that it provides for really critical health and social services to uh, victims of trafficking in this country. And it helps us provide basic necessities, immediate access to shelter and health care. And if I could share with you um, some of the stories of the people that we serve, they come to us with nothing but the clothes they're wearing. And they've been so, their health has been so neglected, many of them have been working in sweatshops with no uh, ventilation, and the health problems are enormous. So the need for those protections to act for access to health care are so critical. Um, the next P is uh, prosecution. So we work very closely with both federal and local law enforcement agencies to make sure that these cases are investigated and prosecuted in a way that is going to hold the right people accountable for this crime, and that's the traffickers and their associates. And the third very important prong is prevention. Um, this is a, a really important event to raise awareness about some of the root causes that uh, are the cause of trafficking globally. And what it does is our State Department actually funds some of the NGOs, non-governmental organizations, to work on those root causes and address it through programs that are going to address poverty, address the issues, the bad side of, of globalization, to help empower communities so that they make they are less vulnerable to traffickers. Does that answer your question? Does this bill affect the T visas and U visas that are provided for uh, uh, victims of slavery and trafficking? Absolutely. And if not, can you explain, I guess, to the audience? Absolutely. Part of the um, benefits or protections that I mentioned involves immigration relief. It's immigration relief specifically for uh, victims of trafficking, but the whole package of services for victims of trafficking is similar to what refugees would be seeking also in this country. Absolutely. Did everyone hear that? That it also allows for help for family members. One of the key things that traffickers use to um, have power and control over victims is threatening their family members back home. So we have a way now to bring family members in on uh, visas as well and to help protect them because as a way for victims to help us in investigating and prosecuting the crime, it helps them to know that their families are safe and sound. So we help with on the services end of that, help the kids get health care and um, registered for school, and help the whole family reintegrate into their new community here in Los Angeles. I don't want to take thank most you. of the time. No, but thank, you. Thank, you. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for doing my job. Um, <laughs> Um, I, 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 just, I just very briefly want to underscore how imperative it is that, that we act to support this bill now. If we don't, it will die. And if it dies, then it, it may be a very, very long road to get the U.S. Uh, government to focus on this in the next administration. I was just asked in an interview what um, 
what my biggest fear is. And at the moment, my biggest fear is that the abolitionist flame will flicker. I know that it won't go out, but to, to protect that flame, all of us need to act now. Mr. Skinner, we had one more question. Um, hello, my name is uh, Sheila Dvorak, and uh, my question is about um, the United States government and how, uh, in your investigation, did you find out specifically, like, what, how much money we are giving to these NGOs and, like, what support? I mean, all of us are taxpayers, I assume most of us are, and when I see my tax dollars going to, like, wars, for example, as opposed to these organizations that can help relieve poverty and to think that it only costs $84 to save that girl's life, mm. why the, the richest country in America is unable to support that kind of community building? I just want to know what your take is on that. Excellent question. Um, I, I spent a lot of time in Washington um, when I wasn't in... in um, you know, an underground brothel in Bucharest or Sudan. And, and the, what I found was that the Bush administration uh, really used this as, a, as a, an issue which appealed to their electoral base. Um, and you have Condoleezza Rice giving soaring speeches in front of the Southern Baptist Convention, getting her largest sustained applause line when she talks about freeing, freeing women from, from sexual slavery. You have, you have President Bush at a time uh, after we invaded uh, Iraq going in front of the UN Security Council, and this was right after the bombing of the, uh, of the, of the uh, hotel that, that killed uh, Sergio Villaramelo, and the UN was was they're like, we're out of here. Um, uh, Bush said um, uh, he spent two-thirds of that, that speech in front of the UN General Assembly talking about Iraq. He spent one-third talking about um, sexual uh, slavery. And he had incredibly soaring rhetoric, which I quote at length in the book. Beautiful, florid words penned by Michael Gerson, his speechwriter who I interviewed on the subject. And yet, you look at the total annual budget uh, that uh, the amount of money that we spend to, to fight the traffic in illegal, in illegal drugs, and this is not to diminish the relative horrors of drug abuse, but the, the amount that we spend to fight the traffic in illegal drugs is 100 times more than the amount that we spend on an annual basis to fight the traffic in human beings. And again, not to diminish the relative horrors of drug abuse, but which is the more monstrous crime against humanity? Where are our priorities as a society, and where are our priority? Where is the priority of of the government? I mean, and and you mentioned war. If you if you take the 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 estimate, the most widely accepted estimate. Um, or the most widely repeated estimate, anyway, of slaves in the world today, 27 million slaves. Um, you take free the slaves um, analysis based on worldwide studies of their partners, how much it costs on average. And I believe it's something like, on average, it's about $400, um, you know, depending on economic strata, depending on continent, depending on situation, to free and rehabilitate and keep free a slave. You multiply that out, and we're talking about roughly $10 billion to free every slave on earth and abolish slavery once and for all. And that sounds like a lot of money, 
until you consider that's a month in Iraq. And, and again, you, you have to ask yourself, where are our priorities as a government? And I hope um, the two senators running for, for the highest uh, office will ask themselves that as well.